somebody said, I'm going to develop an affordable housing apartment community, or I'm going to develop a market rate apartment community. If you, if you stack those two together, you would, and you did a financial analysis, you would never build affordable housing because <laughs> you take three times the risk and you make a no fraction way. of the upside. So that's why there's so many more market rate apartments getting built and not affordable housing. But I like to say God keeps score differently than we do. Um, you know, he, he has a different scorecard. And, uh, you know, how much money do you really need? Welcome to an army of normal folks. I'm Bill Courtney. I'm a normal guy. I'm a husband. I'm a father. I'm an entrepreneur. And I've been a football coach in inner city Memphis. And the last part unintentionally led to an Oscar for the film about our team, it's called Undefeated. I believe our country's problems will never be solved by a bunch of fancy people in nice suits talking big words that nobody uses on CNN and Fox, but rather an army of normal folks, us, just you and me, deciding, hey, I can help. That's what Tim Sinema, the voice we just heard, has done. Tim is a real estate developer who decided to live by a different scorecard. After years of doing traditional development work, one day he was woken up by an academic study that absolutely shocked him and changed him. Since then, he's built 500 affordable housing units with another 500 on the way. There's folks like Tim who could do this in every community across our country, and even creating just one affordable housing unit or home can change a life. I can't wait for you to meet Tim right after these brief messages from our generous sponsors. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. 
Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. And that makes us FACET for life now, I guess. <laughs> Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. So today's an interesting day because of the way it started. Um, I uh, occasionally, you know, we all have our vices, and I occasionally like to load up Lisa or my sons and my father-in-law and fly to Vegas and hide in a corner and get away from people. Um, it's, uh, It's where I forget about all of the problems of my business and everything I've got going on and pull out a couple of hundred bucks and play some blackjack and maybe drink a beer and hang out and have fun with my wife or my family and go eat too much and go to shows. So there you have it. One of my vices is I like to go to Vegas and hang out. And so I'm doing that not too long ago. And this young kid, I call him a kid. He's a young adult, probably 30 named Peter Stipovicic or something, I can't even pronounce it. Um, now I know he's just Peter Stip. Walks up to me and says, hey, I saw you on Undefeated that he'd watched recently. We got her the whole, thanks, I'm glad you enjoyed it, humbling comment stuff. And he didn't leave it alone. <laughs> he kept He kept on with, you know, I'm so you know, inspired to do more. And then he started talking about something he was involved in Charlotte. And candidly, I'm trying to sneak away from everyday life. So I'm not paying that much attention to him, smiling and nodding gratuitously. But then as he kept talking, I started to get more and more interested in what he was talking about. And it led to uh, today's podcast with another name that's hard to say for me, Tim Sinema who is our guest today and has uh, done something absolutely phenomenal in Charlotte that I think is replicable all over our country. And that's what we're going to talk today. And Tim, thanks for being with us. Thanks, Coach. It's great to be here. Tell me about Peter a little bit, the guy who bothered me at the casino. (laughs) Stiff is a quiet, humble guy. Like you say, he's about 30-something. And uh He's very reserved um, until he's not, and he's a good cold caller. He cold call. We're a real estate team, and he cold calls uh, sellers and so on. And he literally can w- walk through walls, but otherwise, he'll sit in a meeting and won't say anything. And <laughs> he was so e- excited about meeting you. He he had just told us the week before about this great movie he watched. He said it was fantastic. You got to see it. It's undefeated, and I did watch it, and it was uh, fantastic. But then he ends up running into you in Vegas, and uh, he he was all excited when he came back. So I guess it's fate that we're together, and um, maybe take him to Vegas. He clearly comes out of his shell there. That's right. (laughs) So um, before we get into the amazing work that you've done that I really want to dive into and understand more of, tell me about Tim the Kid. Tim, where you grew up, your, your mom, your dad, your siblings. Tell me about, you know, the foundation where you came from. Oh, happy to do that. So it's fun for me to talk a little bit about that. So I'm a the youngest son of uh, 
my mom and dad, there were, I have three brothers, an identical twin brother and two older brothers. My folks were normal folks. They, uh, my dad worked in the steel mills. My mom was a teacher. They were big about hard work and big about education. Do your job and get it done right. Do it with excellence. And so three of the four of us uh, went to college and, and beyond. Um, one of my brothers didn't, but and he still lives in what we call the Calumet region. We grew up in South Chicago. All right. And so what's the demo? What is that blue collar? What, what, what was it like when you grew up there? Yeah. So when I grew up, it was and still is blue collar, predominantly blue collar. We grew up in Roseland, 108th and State. And today, there's a lot of crime and a lot of a lot of the shootings in Chicago happen in Roseland and near there. It's a pretty dangerous place today. It wasn't really? when I, yeah, it wasn't when I was growing up. So it's one of those typical blue collar kind of inner city neighborhoods, really all over our country, that was fed with typical blue collar families that really the expansion of suburbia and a lot of white flight, honestly, left kind of deserted and poverty filled the gap. That's exactly right. You know, we don't talk about it quite as directly anymore, but we were products of white flight. The whole neighborhood shifted uh, racially in just a five-year period, and our entire church sold to an African-American congregation we moved to Northwest Indiana and built a new church, and most of the families from our church actually migrated there as well. So it was interesting. I, I had an instance just two weeks ago. I was on a historically black college in Charlotte called Johnson C. Smith University, and I was taking a tour there, and I was introduced to an African-American guy that runs the security detail there, and he's a big, strong guy and I commented about, you know, he throws a lot of, you know, steel around. He lifts a lot of weights. And he said, oh, back in the day in Chicago, I did that. And I said, oh, you're from Chicago. Where are you from? He said, the South Side. I said, uh, oh, me too. He said, no, where? And I said, 108th and State. And he told me, he says, you're the whitest black guy I've ever met. <laughs> because he doesn't know any white people from there He said, there's no white people from there. So suffice it to say, you grew up the son of a steel mill worker and a teacher. And so you had the organic family were cared for, but I got to imagine just, you know, a very normal average blue collar had what you needed, but not a whole lot extra family. That's exactly right. My dad didn't have a new car until he was in his sixties. I think he was, he was buying hand-me-down cars and uh, because he had to. Yeah, I get it. You know, I have four kids too. So they take everything. <laughs> so, yeah. And then you lose your mind. <laughs> then you decide that you don't like some things going on in Charlotte. And by the way, I got to say, your timing's pretty good. It sounds like you caught Denver on the run-up and you caught Charlotte on a pretty good run-up, too. I'm surprised you're not living in Nashville and you didn't catch that thing five <laughs> years ago. Because if you go downtown Nashville, all you see is cranes. It's in, It's insane. Looks like Shanghai did 15 years ago. But anyway, you caught it up. And I've read that, you know, you were doing your world. And then one day you happened to read something out of Harvard or UC Berkeley or something that uh, gave you a stat that absolutely floored you. What yeah, was that? That's accurate. Um, 
there was a professor from Harvard named Raj Chetty who did a study, and I can't remember exactly the year that came out. Maybe, But you were already living in Charlotte. I was in Charlotte. We moved there in 2005. This was maybe 10 years later, so 2015 or so. Not too long ago. Uh, yeah, and, and and it's a, and it's just and you're long enough there now and developing property and making a life there now that Charlotte's home, and you have a reality about your Charlotte, right? And what is your reality of your Charlotte, this growing city? What is your reality before you read this of your Charlotte? Yeah, I I lived in a bubble. I lived in a you know an affluent neighborhood in south charlotte and had friends that looked like me and and uh and worshiped like you and worshiped like and me and voted like you and voted like and me and thought like you it's exactly right right yeah correct on all fronts and uh and my world got a little rocked so professor chetty wrote a study and he did a lot of research and he basically ranked uh, the top 50 cities in the country by population by population and he ranked them on the basis of upward mobility if you're born in the lowest 20 percentile of income in those cities what are your chances of migrating up to the top 20 percentile not the top one percent but the top 20 percentile just lower 20 top 20 you know, going from the bottom fifth to the top fifth, and Charlotte. Which, which would you agree? That's from lower class to call it upper middle. Yeah, I would say that middle upper. We're not talking about getting rich, right? We're talking about just getting out of out of kind of lower middle to upper middle. Yeah, and he was trying. To, I'm sure. I, I don't know the man, but he was. I'm sure trying to essentially come up with a methodology to evaluate on a relative basis one city against another in terms of the opportunities. For poor people, basically. And so he came up with this upward mobility metric. And Charlotte was listed 50th out of the top 50 cities in the country in terms of his metric of upward mobility, going from the bottom fifth to the top fifth. And now, in fairness, I don't remember the numbers because I haven't looked at them now for many years. But, you know, if Charlotte was whatever, 4.21% or something or other, Atlanta was 4. 22% and Nashville may have been 4.23%. I mean, there were a bunch of them that were pretty close, but it was a gift to Charlotte that we actually came in last because it started a lot of conversations at every level in our community, every water cooler, every business, the seats of government. Um, we're saying, wow, we don't want to be last. We don't want to be 50th out of 50. Um, and it started conversations between me and some business friends of mine saying, wow, is there something the business community can do about this? As you said on previous podcasts, the public sector has spent literally trillions of dollars you know, on the declared war on poverty, and they've done a bunch of great work, but the needle hasn't really been moved all that much, and the nonprofit world has done a, and still does a bunch of great work. But there's certainly more to do, as we could see you know, in every city in the country. And Largely, in my view, the business community has been writing checks, but that's about it. And it just felt to me like there had to be something else that we could and should be doing in some of these intractable social problems. You know, as, as I listen to you, there's two things that pop in my head. Is one, Charlotte is always ranked as one of the top 10 cities to live. And isn't it interesting that... Forbes or U.S. News Report or Time or whoever does those kind of rankings would say that you're one of the top 10 cities in, in the country to live in, 
but the metrics say maybe so, but it's also the hardest of the top 50 cities in our country to advance in. So who is it the best city to live in for? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I'm, it, certainly not the people in the study. Clearly. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and, and the other thing is, as I heard what you just said, you know, I'm a business guy. I own, I own, the, I own a business. I own, you know, and I started with nothing. And 20-something years later, we've got 130 employees in a manufacturing facility in Memphis and our sales offices here. we got offices in Shanghai and Ho Chi Minh. We actually do business in 42 different countries. We, we do business in everywhere from England to Albania to the Dominican Republic to Guatemala and all points in between. It's, it's, it's truly, it's an unfortunate reality of my industry because you have to do business in the world to move your goods. But the point is, I've learned a lot over the last 23 years, and I've made an enormous amount of stakes, and I've lost a lot of money because of my mistakes. But what that does, if it doesn't kill you, it gives you a lot of wisdom. And you don't make those mistakes again, and and you grow. And the point is that being held accountable to a bottom line and a bank and a lender and leverage and customers and vendors and employees and yourself, um, the stress of that is a, is a wonderful, um, incentive to learn quickly and wisely and not make the same mistakes twice. I don't think that same dynamic exists in the public sector. And I'm not beating up public servants. I'm not. I'm just saying business people look at things differently than public sector people do. And I have been noted as saying, and I do believe it, that I think government has proven over time inadequate in caring for the most disadvantaged among us. And I don't mean that they do that on purpose. I just don't think the realities of the work that the public sector does necessarily serves the least advantaged among us because we constantly introduce program after program after program. And what happens is programs that were invented 50, 60 years ago that I do believe were well-intentioned, the world evolves and the programs don't and then they just get kind of band-aided and fixed along the way and end up completely inadequate. Whereas in business, you can't afford to do that because you'll go broke. And so a business person looks at things differently. And it would be then my assumption that you guys were taking a fresh look at what these data um, offered you. I couldn't agree more with you, coach. And, and, um, I love what you said early on when, when you're starting this podcast, you, you drive through a poor area, you see, you know, the frustration, the despair, and, you know, you think somebody ought to do something about that. And I like how you said it as if the sentiment matters, sentiment doesn't matter. You know, you should turn the beer down and look at yourself and say, I should do something about that. And, okay, and I you had, can start hosting now. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to step down. You got the whole, no. you got the, you got it down, dude. Well, I, I mean, that was me. That, that was me, it, you know, cause I'm, I'm, I tell people I couldn't spell affordable housing 10 years ago, seven years ago. And now I spend more than half my time, you know, living and walking that, that talk because it finally hit me that, you know, 
maybe I need to do something. Maybe I need to try that. And that's, that's kind of what got me. So these conversations around the water cooler and with friends were saying, boy, and, and at the same time or about the same time, there was a shooting of a young African-American male in Charlotte and that led to some protests. And so the combination of those two events, this Harvard study, and I think it was Keith Lamont Scott shooting, had everybody kind of in Charlotte talking about this stuff. And so a friend of mine and I convened a group of guys, you know, that looked like us and we're starting to talk about, is there something that we could and should be doing here? And there was a lot of interest to do something, but no unity in terms of vision. And so we ended up meeting a uh, young white pastor, Dave Dukason. This is the guy that I found. I mean, this Dukason. Dukason. Yeah. Right. Dave Dukason, everybody, was a pastor working in West Charlotte who was pursuing his PhD in the cyclical patterns of generational poverty. I didn't even know you could get a PhD (laughs) in the cyclical patterns of generational poverty. And this guy spent his time traveling around the U.S., visiting different community development initiatives to understand, you know, what was really happening in generational poverty. And you guys had the good sense to grab him up and say, you've seen it. Tell us what the real world is. That's exactly right. We actually funded his trips to go out there because he was, you know, the pastor. Oh, I didn't, I thought he was doing that as a part of his, you said. Well, he was going to do that, but he didn't have the. And you guys said, go do it, but bring us back the data. That's exactly right. And so we, it was a perfect win-win. So we helped send him to these different places and he brought the research back and in in a shameless plug, he ended up writing a a book that I'd highly recommend called Neighborliness. Very good book. And he's still a friend and dear friend and he's on our board still and, and and a great guy. But he, he studied, he flew to Chicago and Detroit and DC and Atlanta and Orlando and studied places that you know, they were working to transform kind of impoverished, underinvested areas and brought back kind of those models that worked. And the punchline was a lot of the areas that were more successfully transformed had used a model that was originally developed by the purpose-built communities folks out of Atlanta. Again, a great, great organization. They transformed the East Lake area of Atlanta. And so Dave and several other friends and I went down to Atlanta and spent a day, you know, sitting at their feet, listening and learning. And the punchline, if you're going to, if you, uh, according to Purpose Build, if you're going to transform an underinvested area, like in Memphis or in Nashville or Charlotte or anywhere, you've got to do essentially, they would say four things. You got to focus on education. You got to have quality schools. You got to focus on housing because you've got to have stable, affordable housing. You got to focus on jobs and economic opportunity, and you got to focus on health and wellness, education, housing, employment, healthcare. You got to do all of those. You can't just do one and expect things to, you know, life trajectories to change. You've got to invest in all of those things. And so it was amazing. Just, you know, all of a sudden we spent a day and we had kind of a playbook to go adopt an underinvested area. And So now we had no excuses. We kind of sort of knew what we needed to do. And so we went back to Charlotte and said, all right, we're either going to do it or we're not.
And now, a few messages from our generous sponsors. But first, I hope you'll subscribe to the podcast so that you get the newest episodes in your library every week. And please consider signing up to join the Army at normalfolks.us because together, we can change the country. And you'll also receive weekly email updates about the Army. We'll be right back. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80. Join us March 20th live from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. And that makes us FACET for life now, I guess. <laughs> Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform with one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com stereo right now. NetSuite.com stereo. NetSuite.com stereo. It's funny that you say, now we have no excuses, you know, um, you remove the barriers to entry when you remove the excuse. And the interesting part to me is you talk about the four key ingredients is housing, education, employment, and health. Not exactly the most lofty expectations I mean, we're saying, I guess it should be a duh moment too. Oh, you mean people need to have good schools, have some kind of a job, a decent roof over their head, and their health taken care of. 
hmm, shocking. That's not a high bar, is it? Yeah. It's not a high bar. So I go back to South Chicago when you grew up. You had a dad working in a steel mill. He's never been able to afford a new car. I don't assume the house you lived in was anything other than just a probably a normal. I, I, your brothers share rooms. I, I doubt you had a six bedroom house. No, no, with we a teacher rooms. and a steel yeah. worker. Yeah, yeah. But what you did have was a house. You had a good education. Your health was taken care of, and your parents were employed. So even though you were, you know, middle to low middle-ish income coming up, you had the very things you needed to have to be able to get to the station in life that allowed you to move from Denver to Charlotte. Yeah, that's right? exactly right. But if you didn't have those things and you were in the, in the, in the demographic from the Harvard guy of the impossibility of the upward mobility, you would just still be in South Chicago. You're exactly right. I'll, I'll give you an example. One of the early things we did, so now we're armed with this model. So we had kind of decided West Charlotte was an area that we were going to concentrate on. And so we convened a, we call it an education summit with the principals of area public schools in West Charlotte. and The um, principals of the schools themselves. The schools themselves. Did the district get upset No, we, did, we didn't. We just, it was an informal deal. We invited them. It. We said, we're going to buy you lunch we'd love let's to have a chat yeah let's have a chat and uh and you know they they uh showed up and there was i don't know six or eight maybe 10 educators in in the room along with a number of us and what's interesting and now i have grandkids that are in my oldest grandchild is in second grade and she's doing quite well reading and so on and what we learned is one of the key metrics in education is third grade reading literacy up until third grade, you learn how to read. After third grade, you read to learn. So if you leave third grade- Oh, now that's, hold it, hold it. That's interesting. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but yeah. say that again. Up to third grade, you learn how to read. Yeah. After third grade, you read to learn. So if you're not up to third grade literal literate by third grade, you're falling behind minute by minute because you can't learn, you can't read to learn because you still hadn't learned to read. That's exactly right. There are some that people is really interesting. There are some people that can can make projections on the prison space they're going to need based on third grade literacy. Are you kidding? Your chances of incarceration and and all kinds of social challenges increase dramatically if you go into fourth grade with the inability to read. And in West Charlotte, the third grade reading literacy was and is about fifteen percent meaning more than four out of five kids leave third grade not reading at grade level. And so that's what prompted us to have this education summit to talk to the the educators to say, what the heck? I mean, you know, because I've got grandkids, nothing short of 100% reading literacy is acceptable. I wouldn't want any of my grandkids or my kids or anybody else's kids to be leaving third grade uh, unable to read. So we sat down with these principals and educators and said, why? I mean, what, what, what do you need? What, I mean, I mean, did it ever go through your head? Why aren't your teachers teaching it? Well, that's exactly right. And, and I tell a lot of people this, my uninformed, ignorant uh, approach when I walked in the room was thinking the schools are terrible. The teachers are terrible. They're not committed, blah, blah, blah. And I could not have been more wrong. And I think when you think about 
urban, these massive urban districts. Like I think Shelby County, our district, Shelby County in Memphis, I think is one of the largest districts in the country because it's just, it covers such a huge area and it's not broken up. But you think about the districts in New York and Chicago and Detroit and Baltimore and everywhere else. And, you know, you can talk about teachers unions, you can talk about school board elections, you can talk about uh, district presidents, you can talk about all that stuff. And you can quickly get balled up in really a political argument. And you can get balled up in a lot of arguments regarding education. And I think there's a whole lot of people, even listening to us right now, that have some preconceived assumptions about the people working in our public schools, especially in urban areas, and their effort and their dedication to to teach children. And I got to be honest with you, before I worked at Manassas, I had some of those same inaccurate beliefs. What did you find? The the same. I can't speak to Chicago public schools or some of the other cities. I can speak, you know, more intelligently about what we see and experience in Charlotte. But I, I walked into that room and then we actually, my wife and I and some of our team members at our company volunteered to tutor and so on every week for a for a while in one of the schools and and I was blown away. The teachers were great. The uh, principals were great. Uh, the facilities were fine. The technology was available. That, that's not the case everywhere. And you certainly have bad actors in teaching just like you do in any other profession. Um, but by and large, my experience is that is, I mean, you're right. There's always outliers, but by and large, Teachers are there to teach. They care, yeah. They, they really genuinely care. And administrators care about their students and their teachers, and they yeah. want things to go well, and they want their kids to learn. But they don't. They. You just told me, what'd you say, 15%? That's right, 15%. So we said, what so the what'd heck? So what'd you find out? And one of the things they said, which you know basically changed you know kind of my life trajectory uh, from there, was they said, if we can get a child in, in school in August— you know, when school starts. And if that child, he or she is still in school in May, they will learn. But the problem is that's the exception, not the rule. And so we said, okay, you know, tell us more about that. Well, a lot of times, most, I would say most of the students come from single parent households, usually a mom and multiple kids. And mom gets sick, misses work, gets fired, misses a rent check, misses a rent check, gets evicted and pulls the kids out of school to go because they got to go to find some place, you know, in a rent by the week hotel or something or other in a different school district. And so they start with whatever, 24 kids in first grade in August. And by October, you know, there's eight of the kids have left and six more have joined. And, and it's really more of a revolving door kind of musical chairs kind of setup where people come and go in these, in these school districts. And I'm quite sure that repeats itself in every other city, not just in Charlotte. It's almost and like transient school kids. It's exactly right. It's exactly right. And what it 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 told us was the nexus, the the connection between stable, affordable housing and educational outcomes. You can go spend fifty million dollars investing in public schools and not have you know, not move the needle all that much. But if you're going to make an investment, you know, education, housing, employment, healthcare, do all of those things and invest in a collective impact model. 
And so we said, wow, we've got to we've got to do something about the stable, affordable housing so these families can stay put. The kids can walk to school even when mom gets sick or whatever else and make sure these kids are in class from August to May or whatever the school year is. And then allow the teachers to do the job. And allow the teachers to do do the job. Because they've got gray matter, they can do it. The teachers are, for the most part, good and dedicated and committed. So that was a real eye-opener for us to say, okay, housing and educational outcomes are directly linked. So we always talk about what are we going to do to fix the proverbial it. And we're on, in some cities, second and even third generations of... Poverty and poorly educated kids, and a lot of it has to do with this very thing. But my guess is, if you were like me and most folks that do have a heart and want to exact some major change, by actually looking at the reality of the situation, rather than what you hear on the news or what you read in the newspaper or whatever your particular political party slants the story to you as you had to have been sitting at home going wow yeah and and I was in this group of folks that you know that we had been meeting and talking about I was the only real estate guy so education housing employment healthcare, housing is kind of real estate so I said, all right, let me lean into that. You know, how hard can it be? I say that a lot. You know, <laughs> how hard can it be? Well, well it, it can be pretty darn hard. We'll be right back. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform with one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. 
You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash stereo right now. NetSuite.com slash stereo. NetSuite.com slash stereo. So we decided to start doing something in the in the housing space. And initially, uh, again, armed with the purpose-built model, I give them all the credit. This is no original thinking on, on our part. We're uh, taking what they had developed. We came to Charlotte and decided to focus on West Charlotte. Casey Crawford, who owns uh, Movement Mortgage, he was an ex-NFL guy and has a real heart for um, for the inner city. And He's investing a lot of his personal money building public charter schools in the inner city. And so he bought a property and started investing, I think. What is a property? What is bought a property? Yeah, so actually it's kind of a cool story. So our company buys and redevelops properties. Could be an old empty Kmart center, which is exactly what it was in in this example. We also buy vacant land and build apartments or mixed-use developments. Our company was under contract on an old empty Kmart in West Charlotte, and we were going to try to redevelop it into you know, a shopping center. But Casey had one of his guys call to say, hey, you know, I hear you guys are going to buy that center. What are you going to do with it? And I told him, and I said, what are you calling about? He says, well, Casey wants to buy it and do a charter school, and he's got a real heart for the inner city. And, and we weren't all that far along with our plans. So I felt led to assign our contract to Casey. He paid us for our expenses to date, and he bought the center and spent, I think, 12 or $14 million of his own money building a charter school, which has now been open for a number of years. And so that was kind of the start. That was the start of the education piece. Yeah, and but now you got to have affordable housing near it. That's right. So there was some extra land that came with the site. So I talked to Casey about, hey, we want to do something, maybe some affordable housing there. He said, great. It wasn't big enough, so we had to assemble a piece next next to it. We didn't develop affordable housing, so we went out and interviewed different nonprofits that developed affordable housing, invited one to come in, and they loved the idea, and it was a great site. So we started working with them, and and it was just tough. It was a more difficult process working with them. And I remember sitting out with Casey was involved because he owned part of the land, and in one of our meetings, he looked at me and said, I wish you were developing this. And I said, you know, I'm kind of getting the sense that maybe, maybe, you know, that's uh, in my future. And, uh, uh, <laughs> kind of get the sense yeah. that maybe. <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyway, we finished that deal. This nonprofit developed the, the housing there. And then we ended up, um, I ended up hiring a couple of folks and building a team to go start developing affordable housing. And, We've been doing it now for, I guess, about six six years or so, six or seven years. All right. So as I hear all that, not many normal folks have $12 million to buy Kmart and make a school. But there are plenty of people with good hearts who are business folks who know how finance and leverage works that can pull things off like that in every city. 
but it first took learning what the problems are to even understand what in the world you really needed to do rather than just writing checks and throwing money at it, which I would argue happens a lot. So that points back to what I'm saying. I don't think any public entity could have pulled that off. There's no cities buying Kmarts and converting them to public schools and then working with a developer to build housing around the school to better the community. It's it's not that public people, it's just not what they do. That's that's my that was my point earlier about the difference in a private business approach to this stuff and a and a public approach. Get the facts, learn the facts, understand the data, find out what the real problems are in a very practical, realistic sense, and then go fix the problems um, in a in a very business-like approach. And that sounds exactly to me like what you've done. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. I mean, business people are known for building a vision, casting the vision, selling the vision, coming up with a strategy to execute. That's what we do. And, you know, these are tough, tough, tough challenges, but they need people to think clearly, have vision, cast the vision and so on. And so that's what we try to do. And so we started in West Charlotte and what we quickly learned was this group of us, and and I'm sitting here, but any of this group, you know, could be here telling the same story. Couldn't have done it by myself, didn't do it by myself. But what we learned was we were the limiter because there's so much work to do and we only had so much time to do it. So we ended up starting a nonprofit, which we called Freedom Communities, uh, plural, because we thought we could prove the concept and then scale it, you know, to other places. So we started this nonprofit and uh, I'm still involved, still board chair, and it's so fulfilling for me to still be involved. So tell us about the first Freedom Community, which was a Kmart and some land beside it. Yeah. How many units, I guess is the right word. I'm I, I'm thinking of affordable housing. I'm imagining something that looks something like apartments or condominiums or something yep. like that. So how many units was that first one? Yeah. So I think the, the first community, which we didn't develop, that's the one next to the uh, public charter school, I think it's probably about 140 units. It's an apartment community. We have since now, we've completed three full communities from 130 units up to 180 units. And we've got two more under construction right now. So call it, uh, and then we got several more in the works. So, you know, five or six different developments in different parts of West Charlotte. We're trying to invest in areas that are gentrifying, meaning there's new investment coming in. But what happens with the new investment is it displaces the people that have been there, you know, as prices rise, as rents rise and so on. And so we're trying to get ahead of that gentrification, trying to find sites that we can develop affordable housing in. And this gets technical, but in North Carolina and in most states, if you're a nonprofit owner of affordable housing, you don't have to pay property tax. Well, not paying property tax is a big deal on a a big property like that. And so we tried to set up a nonprofit to build our affordable housing and the IRS didn't like the idea of bolting a nonprofit onto a for-profit development company. 
Um, and so what we ended up doing was we just said, shoot, we're just going to let Freedom Communities, a nonprofit that we had just started, we'll let them own all these affordable housing developments. And so that wasn't something that we set out to do, but we kind of fell into it. And it turned out to be a, um, that's one of the coolest parts of our structure. Our company, Crossing Southeast, is doing all the work, taking all the risk, investing all the capital. And Freedom Communities owns the affordable housing and they can then invest in the families within the affordable housing developments. They get the cash flow that comes from those units. They get the future value. Which which can be lower because they're not paying property taxes. That's exactly right. That's ex- that's exactly so you're right. able to lower the rent, run it as a nonprofit, keep the property up, but because you're not having because it's a nonprofit, you're not having to pay property taxes. You can charge less rent, just enough to cover the maintenance and everything of the project, and in doing so, offer significantly lower rent for really nice places. Yeah, kind of like that. So so if you're doing affordable housing, uh, and this gets back to what something you said earlier. So our first development deal using real numbers, our first development deal was 180 units and it cost back then $31 million. Okay? Good Lord, where's the money come from? Yeah, $31 million. We had it to, uh, to, build, um, to build those units. But the, the government tells you if, if it's going to be affordable housing, they tell you what the rent needs to be to be affordable. And generally speaking, the rent is for somebody to have an affordable home, they can't be spending more than 30% of their income on housing. And so depending on how much you make, you know, you take 30% of whatever you make and that's what is considered an affordable rent. And so when you're setting those affordable rents, it costs you $31 million to build this thing. The building upon completion with the rents that you're charging is only worth about half that, 15 or $16 million. Well, how do you cover it? How do you cover it? Because you get bills for $31 million. And so you can only finance a certain amount of, you know, maybe you get a 10 or $12 million construction loan because they're not going to loan you $30 million on an asset that's only worth $15 million. And so the low income housing tax credit program is the it's a terrible program, but it's the best thing that's out there uh, for for affordable. Speaking of government programs, yeah, that's exactly right. We couldn't do what we're doing without it. So, I mean, I mean that sincerely, but there's all kinds of challenges with it. And so, so we got call it conventional debt. Say, use round numbers, fifteen million dollars. We've got about ten or eleven million dollars of low income housing tax credits through the federal government. And then we still had about $5 million left to solve for. And fortunately, the city of Charlotte and many other cities have something we call it the housing trust fund. The city floats a bond for now it's $50 million. It used to be $15 million every two years. And they use that for affordable housing initiatives. And so you make an application for your development and they review it. And if they deem it worthy, then they'll make this $5 million or $3 million investment. In our case, it was $5 million, and it's a 1% loan that we need to repay, but 1% money is pretty cheap. And so we built this $30 million project. We borrowed $15 million. We got $10 million of low-income housing tax credits, $5 million from the city housing trust fund. 
and we were off to the races and we build a project. Um, and nobody makes any money. There's no profit. Uh, but it we, doesn't matter. We get a little development fee to cover some overhead and so on. And we also have to sign loan guarantees and tax credit compliance guarantees. And I mean, it gets involved. You got to step out there and you got to go to work yeah. and you got to put your name on it. That's right. But one of the earliest things we did, knowing what we learned from Purpose Build, education, housing, employment, healthcare, we said, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to, and I had my uh, team plot the 30 best elementary schools in Charlotte. And I said, okay, we're, we're going to pair housing with education, plot the 30 best elementary schools in Charlotte. And wherever, you know, there's a, a an elementary school, a great elementary school, we're going to try to get as close to that school as we can with housing. Well, then as you start getting smarter about this low income housing tax credits, you realize that one of the programs says you need as many tax credits as, as you can get, but there's a program that says we'll give you 30% more tax credits if you build in what they call a qualified census tract, QCT areas. And so we said, okay, great. We're going to plot these 30 elementary schools and we're going to plot all the qualified census tracts in Charlotte. And wherever there's an intersection, that's where we're going to look for affordable housing. And I was eagerly waiting. I'm thinking, oh, we're, we're, you know, we're pretty clever. We got it. We got this strategy. And we got this map printed. And I looked at it. My heart sank. There were no intersections. Wow. Well, qualified census tracts, by definition, are areas of concentrated poverty. And that was a, a definition like from the 1970s. The government, you know, to combat redlining and some of those awful things that were done. Uh, you mean something five decades ago that was well-intentioned, but it's outworn its usefulness, like I was describing about 30 minutes ago? Exactly that. So I looked at this and said, so you get a th you get 30% more tax credits to build in areas of concentrated poverty that, for the most part, don't have quality education, don't have access to health care, don't have jobs and economic opportunity. But you get more tax credits to, to build there. The program should be the exact inverse of Opposite. that. Opposite. You, you should be getting bonuses to build in predominantly affluent areas with great schools and, and all the other uh, infrastructure. Um, but we're incentivized to actually further concentrate poverty, which is crazy in, in my view. Well, and to that point and the gentrification point is – um, I, I, <laughs> way too much reading, but it, it's, it's a chicken or the egg thing. Um, and it is the scourge of what white flight in the seventies that could be argued started with busing, um, by and large busing and then school integration, which is another stain on our history, in my opinion, I understand it, understand why, and I live in the city that dealt with it. But the reason I say it's a stain is um, one of the things I've read is one of the greatest accelerators out of poverty is to have lower income people living amongst working with and going to school, at least middle income people. Mixed income. That's exactly right. And the problem is when you're incented to invest in poverty and concentrate poverty in poverty, you lose that step up. I mean, it, it, that's right. That's right? exactly right. That's exactly right. Studies have shown that if, if you get in, in some of the communities that we're building now, 
we're trying to to mix incomes from as low as there's a lot of acronyms and and uh, abbreviations in this business, but uh, AMI area median income. So every city or every neighborhood has an area median income. In Charlotte, if you're a family of four, it's somewhere around ninety thousand dollars. That's the area median income. Affordable housing generally serves people that make from 30% of the AMI up to 80% of the AMI. So again, for a family of 30% four, of the AMI at 90 is only 27,000 a year for so a family of four. Now, how the heck are they going to afford rent? Because we set the rent at, again, 30% of what they make. So to use round numbers, if somebody makes $30,000, they're paying $9,000 for you know a two bedroom apartment annually, so whatever that is, uh, you eighty know, bucks, eight hundred dollars a uh, less I, than seven hundred dollars yeah. a month for an apartment that you know a market rate for that deal might be two thousand dollars, and they're only paying seven hundred dollars. Oh, for I bet it. it's more than that. My kid yeah. just rented an apartment in Atlanta, first job out, and I mean it's nice, it's safe, but it's nothing overly special. It's a one bedroom apartment not even inside the city limits and he pays 2250 a month for that thing and yeah. i mean i i could I, we lisa and i went with him to find an apartment and we spent all weekend and he did a really good job and we had 18 different places to visit and i was shocked yeah. that kids when i say kids 25 to 30 year old kids that can't afford a house yet that are out there starting their lives are actually dumping $2,400 a month on rent for a one-bedroom or a two-bedroom apartment. Yeah, it's insane. It is insane, but given that, you talk about gentrification, you build that in an area that is being redeveloped. How is somebody making twenty-seven, dollars dollars $35,000, a, a lower-income, blue-collar person, trying to make it from that bottom 20% out of the 20%, how do they ever live there yeah and so then they got to move down the rung to be able to afford housing which puts them in worse neighborhoods worse everything and so goes the the cycle we'll be right back witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infinity QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer.
Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform with one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash stereo right now. NetSuite.com slash stereo. NetSuite.com slash stereo. One of the principal programs that Freedom does is we run cohorts. We have a program called Moms Moving Forward, and we get a cohort, typically around 15 moms. We do a one-year program, and we, we start a new cohort, a new class every three or four months. So we may have three classes going at, at one time, and they're 12-month programs. And we pay these moms to attend our classes. They meet one-on-one every week with a, a life coach, and then they meet a couple of times a month in a group. And we have curriculum that we go through with parenting and financial literacy and family planning and all these different um, important skills. And these moms build a network of people that are in it with them. Um, You know, the average single mom has three kids in our program. So there may be 15 moms and 45 kids. And so we're serving these moms through this curriculum, but we're also trying to build educational programs for each of the kids to make sure these kids have every chance they can of learning how to read by third grade grade. Um, and continuing to advance in school and and sticking with the the education because that's one of the big difference makers is if these kids can change their, you know, educational outcomes, complete high school, and hopefully get inspired to go to college. Not every kid's you know, wants to go to college or needs to go to college. Trade schools are coming back. Thank the Lord. That's exactly. And community colleges are, we've got a great uh, central Piedmont community college system is great in Charlotte. So any kid that wants the opportunity or has the desire should have the opportunity to do it. And that's what we're trying to work on. So tell me about the ridiculously amazing and shocking and probably going to surprise everybody listening to um, the aha moment when you found out that 80% of a child's brain develops by the age of three, (laughs) not third grade, 80% of a human being's brain is fully developed by the age 
three. Yeah, and give credit where credit is due. I didn't discover that. Hannah Beavers, the executive director, did, and she read it someplace. Just when you heard it. That's amazing. And there's all kinds of moments that's, that stand out for me. You know, one moment, one of the early things we did is we learned that a lot of these moms don't have books at home. These kids don't have books at home. So, Which, which speaks to the ABCs, the one, two, three, the learning colors, and the earliest childhood development. But your child at three, their 80% of their brain's developed. Right. So you, you got to start early and you got to, you know, there's, there's, you know, all kinds of terms, word deficit, you know, one of your kids when they were little, one of my kids, you know, they hear a certain number of, you know, tens of thousands of words, um, you know, I don't know what the stats are in a week or a day or whatever the deal is, but a lot of these inner city kids, because they're home alone or whatever, they, you know, they have these, you know, thousands and thousands of word deficit. They're not hearing the words. And so they're, you know, that's part of the challenge they've got to overcome a little bit. So one of the things we did is we, we bought books and sent them home with these kids so they could Just have ch- children, but kids, yeah, George kids, or yeah that's exactly Just, right. Sent yeah. them home. And, and one of the, one of our staff members was talking to one of the kids and said, Hey, you know, are you enjoying the book? Uh, that we sent home with you the other day. And, and this little kid said, uh, I, I don't know, mom threw it away. And uh, and really, was there something wrong with the book? No, I don't know, mom threw it away. And so this teacher was, or this staff member was puzzled, well, run into, ran into the mom a couple of days later and said, hey, your son said that uh, you threw the book away. Yeah, we threw the book away. Well, why'd you throw the book away? And the mom said, well, we read it. Uh, oh man. And I mean my heart sunk again when I when I hear that story and and you know right away when you hear that 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 mom didn't know to read that book a thousand times to her kid because nobody read nobody her, did it book. To her. That's the generational cycle. We've got to break that cycle. And so um And it's not it doesn't mean they're they're stupid or they don't care. It just got to be taught. That's exactly right. Got to be was, nurtured. It was never modeled to them, and so, um, yeah, and so, that's the kind of challenges that we've we've got to overcome. And so, it it it, uh, you know, it takes a lot of work over a, a long, prolonged period of time. One of the other things we learned from Purpose Built, and I'm a person of faith, and faith is certainly, uh, you know, in large part why I'm doing this. But we asked the Purpose Built folks. You have a lot of you know churches and and faith communities involved, and the CEO of Purpose Built made a comment saying, actually, the faith community does more harm than good. And all of a sudden, you know, wow. I said, why would you say that? And what she said was, they are well intentioned. There's a champion that says, I want to do something, so they start a committee. And they lean in and they make a bunch of promises. And then a year later, the they're gone. They're gone. And they got a new champion that's on to something else. Um, and they disappear. And uh, it was kind of like your, one of your, I guess it was in the Tommy Norman episode where you're talking about turkey people, something like that. Yeah. I mean, they show up, they do good, they feel good for a year. You never year, see them again. And you never see them again. And and do you know people in those neighborhoods that you're trying to serve are really, really accustomed to people coming in, saying a bunch of stuff, hoopla and everything else, and then bolting? And then you go in after two generations or three decades of that, and you wonder why when you show up, they look at you with suspicion. That's exactly right. Well, I mean, it's because that's the picture we've painted. That's... 
we modeled it. Um, we have modeled it. Yeah. And so and we culturally we and yeah. that is not only that's public private that's and, and I agree with you. I think by and large all of that is well intentioned. But without commitment and staying power, you're just another noise. Yeah. So they told us if you're going to do it, do it. But if you're not committed, then don't even start because you're going to do more harm than good. And so there's nothing worse than raising hopes and letting down again. That's exactly right. And so we just there were lots of challenges we faced along the way. But we were and this is where the power of teamwork comes in. If I was doing it myself, I'd have given up a long time ago. But, um, you know, my friends and I said, let's keep going. Let's keep going and fighting through it. And uh, and now we're starting to roll the rock a little bit down the hill. It's still hard, but. We're not pushing it uphill, you know, all the time anymore. And uh, it's changing lives, and we're hoping to. Uh, we no, I, I mean, I know, I under, I get the humility, yeah, but the the it has to be changing lives, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I have had uh, this is one of my things I love to talk about. Um, and I again back to I get asked all the time as if I know the answers, which I don't. I just know what little bit of experience I've had personally, and that's what I can speak to. Um, but doing the work that you do, you're doing, and the thousands of other people across the country that we highlight will continue to highlight on an army of normal folks, especially though when working in the world that you're working in now. I think it's important for people to think about the social impact. And we talk about the social impact a lot. And it makes us feel good to talk about being able to move the needle on the social impact. And the social impact is housing and education and health and employment and kids not being transient and staying in school and learning to read by grade level in third grade so that the indicators of their life from that point are positive rather than negative and not building jails based on how many third graders can (laughs) read and how many three-year-olds who have an 80% brain development have never been read to or sung a lullaby and, and, and the, 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 the showing up to first grade, knowing your ABCs, your one, two, threes, and your colors. And if you haven't had that at home or in a pre-K and early childhood development, that's going to slow down your ability to read. And I love what you said about until third grade, you learn to read. And after third grade, you read to learn. And the social impact of everything you're doing, all of it, I think is only half of the story. Because I think there's a pragmatic side to this. And I do, I'm not saying this take away from the social impact because you know me, I'm a touchy feely guy. I mean, there's a movie about it and books and everything else. And everybody listening should know I'm the touchy feely social impact guy. I am, but I'm also a businessman. We need to start asking ourselves the vast majority of every municipality's revenue is property tax. The vast majority. There's some will tax. Probably, maybe some tag tax, sales tax, maybe a little bit of sales tax. But in Tennessee, there is no sales tax. There's no in Texas. And the sales tax in North Carolina, I don't know what it is, but it's not all going to the city. It's going to the state. And the city gets a small piece, right? I would say, 
well, I know that like 90 something percent of the total revenue in the, in the city of Memphis is, is property taxes. And I would um, assume in most cities, that's at least the lion's share of where your revenue comes from. Pragmatically, what happens to our ability to pave roads? What happens to our ability to provide clean water? What happens to our ability to provide well-trained police departments and paramedics and, and fire brigades? What, what happens to our ability to fund schools? What happens to our ability to actually create a clean, healthy municipality in all corners of our earth and all these urban areas? If we don't stop the generational poverty, because eventually you get to where you have so many folks that aren't contributing to the revenue and the tax base of these municipalities that, that they're unsustainable. There's a social impact component to all of this, which I would argue is the most important impact. But there's another one, and the pragmatic is we better get busy about doing something about this. Because even if you don't care about the social impact, you should certainly care about the pragmatic impact. And there's only so many more generations we can go before the have-nots far outnumber the haves. And your society no longer works from a fiscal perspective. It pay me now or pay me later. Um, it is that. It, it is. It's very much that. And, and. You know, our Moms Moving Forward program, we like to say it's a two-generational program. We're serving the mom, and we're trying to help their kids. And sometimes it's difficult, you know, if, if, if a mom – and I'll tell you another thing that's, that's a delicate topic, but it's an important one, is the whole family planning thing. Um, I don't care what race or nationality you are. If you get pregnant at 15 and pregnant again at 17 – your chances of living in poverty the rest of your life go up astronomically than if you wait until you're married to have children. It, that's a fact. So if you've got a single mom that's got three kids, um, we're going to do everything we can to, she probably hasn't finished high school or maybe maybe she's got a GED, but she doesn't qualify for some high paying job. So we try to give her the skills to get to a, a slightly higher paying job. We go through lots of other um, training um, for her, and we're going to do everything we can for her. And we're investing in that next generation to try to break the cycle so that that next generation can learn some of the, the potholes to, to navigate around. Don't get pregnant when you're 15 or 13 or, or 16. Stay in school. Finish your education. Learn how to read. Do your homework and see you know, how reading to kids gets modeled so that you can repeat that the next generation and so on. And it's generational work that we're, we're involved with. But if we can break that cycle for the next generation, it's hard to, um, you know, uh, financially evaluate that contribution. It's expensive. It takes a lot of time. But if we can break that cycle for the next generation, I think the return on investment is huge. So... The first project was 180 units opened in 2020. The second, 156 opened in 2021. To date, you've built 504 units. You've got another 500 units under construction. By my math, we'll call that 1,000. <laughs> you've also told us that 
most mothers have three kids. So if you count an average of four times the thousand units, you're talking about changing the lives of 4,000 people, 3,000 of which are children. Hmm. How's that make you feel? Yeah, I, uh, Never really thought about it that way. Sorry, never thought about it that way. Um, we take it, you know, one project at a time, one family at a time, and uh, hopefully, um, you know, we do our job and, and uh, the results speak for themselves. Guys, you can hear just how emotional Tim got there. And y'all, it's just the, the part of the payoff of living a life of service of others. And I'm, I've said it a hundred times, the, the, the secret payoff pitch to get involved and in serving in our communities and, and living a life of servant leadership is you really do get a thousand times more out of it than you put into it. And the emotion Tim just shared with us is his realization of of not only what his work has done, but what it's meant to him. That concludes part one of my conversation with Tim, and I hope you'll join us for part two that's now available. But if for some strange reason you don't, make sure to join the Army of Normal Folks at normalfolks.us and sign up to become a member of the movement. By signing up, you'll also receive a weekly email and short episode summaries in case you happen to miss an episode or you prefer reading about our incredible guests like Tim. Together, we can change this country. And guys, it starts with you. I'll see you in part two. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infinity QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. <laughs> Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. With the best all-inclusive vacation deals to Mexico and the Caribbean, booking your getaway with cheap Caribbean vacations means you have more freedom. Whether you want to enjoy snorkeling, endless margaritas, and more, cheap Caribbean vacations has your deal for that. Plan and book using our exclusive budget beach finder or find a featured all-inclusive package to Hyatt Ziva Riviera Cancun at CheapCaribbean.com. That's CheapCaribbean.com.